Good morning, Laura. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I kind of wish, I, I mean, I was hoping for some song there, but you know, it was a nice oh. little delightful. Good morning. Okay, yeah. I'm good now. Okay, I'm good. <laughs> I got it. That's all I needed. <laughs> well, so what have you been up to? I know you had a big thing this weekend. I did. I think we've mentioned it on here, but I was lucky to get nominated and receive the award for 40 Under 40 in Charleston, which is especially just kind of specifically highlights people that are, you know, just doing good things in their field and their careers, as well as community wise. And I have to tell you that I was so inspired by all of these people. Like I felt like, you know, of course, a little imposter syndrome creeped in there for a minute. Uh, uh. But <laughs> I will tell you, these people were like, just beyond just that step up of good humans that are doing everything they can to not only excel in their field, but also to give back to the community. And so I also want to give a huge shout out to everybody else that won that. I'm going to put a link to all of it because it was really a very inspiring experience. So as much as it was great to receive, receive an award and all that, ultimately, it was kind of a humbling experience that that there are so many people that are my age, our age out there doing good stuff. So I That's feel so cool. extremely lucky to be a part of that. So yeah, no, it was basically all downhill from here. I don't know. I think I might have <laughs> you reached the pinnacle. <laughs> it's done. You've done all the good you're going to do now. Yeah. How about you're you though? Getting, you're yeah, just getting started. You had a pretty big weekend though too. Yeah, I actually helped actually David Goldsmith, who we had on the program, is producing kind of a show. Don't really know what it is yet, but a, a show featuring Frank Meek, one of the guests we have on today. And I went and helped do some filming last night. And it was really, really I was we filmed all day and it was it was a really, really great experience. So that was that we I've got some concert uh, work lined up for uh, in the next coming weeks. I'm going on some more ships and going to Puerto Vallarta. So that'll be fun. So yeah, just start trying to stay busy out here. You know, the hustle oh, is the real. hustle. Always yeah. with the hustle. <laughs> the struggle is real. But today we've got a, I would say, probably one of the most incredible guests we've had on to date. Y'all, 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 I ready. cried. <laughs> yeah, we both. I, we, we I'm going to try to cut out as much as I can of me actively sobbing. But it. this was an, an incredibly moving experience, I think, for all of us involved. And I don't think I can really emphasize that enough for wh whoever is going to be is listening to this because this is going to change your life in some ways, I think. It will. It definitely, it definitely changed ours. And I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit about Frank. So Frank Mink's violent childhood in South Philadelphia primed him to hate, while addiction made him easy prey for a small group of skinhead gang recruiters. By age 16, he had become one of the most notorious skinhead gang leaders on the East Coast. He had his own public access talk show called The Reich. He appeared on Nightline and other media outlets as a spokesperson for neo-Nazi topics, and he regularly recruited members of his South Philadelphia neighborhood to join his skinhead gang. But by the age of 18, he was doing hard time. While in prison, Frank was teamed up with African-American players in a football league and learned to question his hatred. And after being paroled, he defected from the white supremacy movement and began speaking on behalf of the Anti-Defamation League as well as appearing on NPR, CNN, and other news outlets as a spokesperson against the neo-Nazi movement, and now speaks out about police reform. He is also the author of The Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead, which is Frank Mink's raw telling of his descent into America's Nazi underground, his ultimate triumph over drugs, and a story of fighting the demons of hatred and addiction. 
Everyone, please welcome Frank Mink. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Welcome to the program. Yes, welcome. How are you this morning? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you guys for having me. We're very happy to have you. Frank, can you go ahead and give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, where you grew up, and what the conditions were like when you were younger? So I grew up, start off with my parents were young when they had me. They were both kind of, my dad was kind of in the uh, drug and street game, and he was kind of like a young Rocky Balboa lookalike guy. And my mom was this girl from the Irish neighborhood who found the bad boy very attractive and he was the real a real bad boy and so they conceived me actually the night that my dad's best friend was killed by the police my mom and dad ran from the park where he was shot and as they were hiding free at the location they got very intimate with each other very passionate moment and that's how frank came to be so funny that's what I do now for a living. But they tried to make it work, didn't work. You know, drugs was a huge part of their deal. And my mom, you know, said, I'm going to move away from him. And she moved back with me to her all Irish neighborhood in South Philly. But I would move there with a, an Italian last name. My name was Frankie Bertolini at the time. Very, very much a Dego. And when we got there, my grandparents didn't like my dad and they didn't like Degos. So for however the story came to be, my last name got changed back to my mom's maiden name. And I always knew about this and I knew that there was some deal with this thing. And anyway, that kind of probably affected me in one way or another. You know, I was kind of hiding something already. Something was embarrassing about me. Something was wrong about me. And anyway, my mom goes on to struggle, but she had some good jobs and I was kind of always proud of her, but she liked to party. You know, I remember seeing straws and razor blades in the bathroom in our house. She had people over frequently. I remember hearing Jethro Tull being played when I would go to bed sometimes. Whenever I hear Aqualung, the house would start smelling like a funny smell of weed and whatever. And this was part of the, the deal that we grew up in. I remember there being at times uh, us being on uh, food stamps or having food stamps and having to go to the store with food stamps. I was very embarrassed as a kid to have to pull those out in the store, but knew that relied on my mom. And, and she eventually gets married. My mom was not a very loving person. My mom, like I can tell you, I don't really remember my mom ever until the end of her life. But growing up, I don't remember my mom ever like pulling me aside and saying, I love you, Frank, or I'm proud of you. And, Boo-hoo, you know, that's just what it was. It is what it is. My mom gets remarried to a man who was just not a good human being. Child of God, whatever, he was just not a good human being, especially to me. And he, for whatever reason, took everything out on me. He hated me being in the house because he was building a family with my mom now. They were, she was now pregnant, but with his kids, and he couldn't wait to kind of get me out of the house. And he would tell me the stuff I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, and this man would let it be known that you're not really welcome here. And so after a bunch of ass whoopings from him and just a lot of mental, mental abuse, I was considered a POW. He would call me his POW because we were at war over my mother. And he would tell this to me. And so whenever he would ground me, he would say, you're grounded for this long POW. And I'll tell you guys, I hated going home. Every day when I would come home from school, because I was always getting in trouble at school now, I'm always fist fighting, just whatever, just acting out at school. I couldn't help it. I don't know. Something was wrong with me. 
And so I would go home and before I would go home and I, I tell this story just because I want people, I know people identify with this somehow and maybe not in the same exact way, but when I would go home, I would beg for a freaking car to hit me because I knew I wouldn't die because everyone in South Philly gets hit by cars. Everybody. It's the thing to do in our neighborhood is you get hit by a car because there's a small narrow streets and you get hit by one of your cousins. So you can't even sue. You can't even do anything about it, but you, everyone would get hit by cars. And I was the one kid who wanted to get hit by a car and just never was hit by a car. Like, cause my body would always tell me to get out of the way. So anyway, I would go home cause I'm just very athletic and I would juke out of the way every time. And I remember feeling like such a loser. Like I can't even get hit by a car. Like I can't do anything right in life. And uh, one day I went home and I remember one day I was really hoping to get by, hit by a car and I didn't. And I wish I would have in a way because when I went home, I just got the shit beat out of me. I got in trouble at school again and my stepfather was waiting for me there. And when I came home, my mom wasn't home so he can have his way with me. And it was a royal ass whooping. And he dragged me up the steps and told me, pack my shit. You're going to move with your real father. Now, I don't really know my real dad. I've been around him a couple of times. I loved him. I looked up to him. He was a street fighter. I'd heard all these rumors about my dad all the time. But now he can move into a whole different neighborhood where he lived. And he had a bar. And I lived in a – mostly, we lived in a, a really mixed section. I'm 13. So I moved to my dad's neighborhood. And my dad's house was on, literally – it was the first house on the other side of the tracks – to the bad neighborhood. I mean, it was the tracks, then our house. I mean, it was the train tracks, then our house, then the housing projects. I mean, we literally lived on the wrong side of the tracks. I had to go to a school and I went to an all black school when I moved up with him and it just was not a nice school. It just so much stuff went on at that school. In fact, that school later on got closed down. It's called Pepper Middle School. If anyone wants to research it, they eventually closed Pepper Middle School because of just the violence and the neglect and the, and I was there some of the last years that the school was open and it was, you know, white kids got jumped all the time. Everyone got jumped all the time. You know, it was just had a crazy and had a high school right next door to it. That was only for freshmen. It was called the Bartram freshman center. So all the, uh, which was an all black high school. So all the freshmen had to go to this other building and those kids got out. They went to school like 15 minutes after we went to school because we were in the middle school and they got let out like 15 to 20 minutes earlier than we did. So the older kids would just wait by our school. And I hated it. And uh, I could tell you that for the, some of the ass whoopings I took at that school, none of them were as bad as the ones my stepdad gave me. So it was like, it kind of was nothing. I was always like, whatever. I mean, but I hated going to that school. And I seen a kid getting robbed one day in the bathroom by some black kids that I knew because I played on the baseball team there. And our baseball team was, we won the championship. But I still just wasn't outside of some of my teammates. I still was not okay. And so one day I walked in the bathroom and I seen this white kid getting robbed and he humiliated and picked on and bullied in the bathroom. And as I walked in, I noticed I walked into some, some kind of trouble. But the black kids I knew and they were like, ah, Frank's cool. Like meaning I'm not going to go tell on them for robbing this kid. And this white kid was just looking at me like, go tell somebody, you know. And I didn't. I left them there. Well, you were obviously in a in a situation that was, I'd say, a very compounding, traumatic, all around kind of upbringing, and it seems like that move wasn't. It may have been more safe, but not entirely so, because you then ended up at a school that you didn't feel safe in at all at that point too. So, I mean, you've got pretty much 
everything from every direction coming at you at that point. And so we know from your book and other speaking engagements that you've done that you did around a little bit after that get involved with the neo-Nazi movement. So how do you think that all of that, your upbringing, some addiction that we'll talk about later, and, and kind of your general living conditions played into getting involved? So yeah, right after that school year, I got to go up to go visit some cousins of mine who lived up in the, moved from South Philly to my mom's side of the family. They moved from South Philly up to the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area, Bucks County, that area, which is like the hub of the Amish. I mean, that's their turf. You go up there, they really live that way. I tell people all the time, like they didn't turn butter because they seen us coming and they went to reenact what it lived. They really turned butter, right? So... That was fascinating to me. But my cousin who lived up there, who the year before, the summer before I had gone and spent a good chunk of my summer up there with him, was a skateboarder, punk rock, sports kid. And I couldn't wait to go up and do all that same stuff with him again. And when I got up there that summer, he was not. He was part of this neo-Nazi group. And he had swastika flags and Confederate flags hanging in his room. And my aunt and uncle thought he was just going through a phase because he had been rebelling because he hated that they moved him from South Philly where all his family was up to the farms and around all Amish people. So they were good people. They just kind of thought he was going through a phase. And majority of almost every night, these other skinheads would always come and they would park their cars. And they were like my cousin's friends. And they would come park their cars and they climb up this little balcony that they, my aunt and uncle, you know, a nice house. And he'd climb up the balcony and they'd bring beer over and sneak girls over. And they were tattooed and they were 16, 17 year old farm boys with cars. And man, I just thought they were super cool to get with because they had cars and they brought girls and they had beer all the time. And they let me drink. And I'm a 13 year old alcoholism in my genes but anyway and i would drink with these guys and i remember just when they would talk about multiracial society that doesn't work i'm like i don't know what that means but i and they start talking about blacks and whites i'm like you have no idea <laughs> yeah we don't get along i was just fist fighting with kids two weeks ago and these guys never been around black people they really haven't i mean they had seen and heard things and whatever and so when they would start talking about black people i was kind of like they're black people encyclopedia they'd be like is that really like that you know do they really smell like funyuns you know blah 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 whatever you know and and i would be like yeah you know i take the train with black people all the time and they'd be like you're all, you you take the train every day with black people i say yeah dude i gotta take the l train all the time like yeah i see black people every day <laughs> and to me that was finally someone saying to me because i can walk home with a black guy i can walk home from sports i can walk and my parents never said How's the game, Frank? How's life? Are you okay? Do you like that girl? Is there a girl you have? You know, they didn't have time for me. And now these guys are asking me what's it like around black people. It was someone saying, how's your day? How's your life? That's what it felt to me. Felt so, valued too because yeah. you had some information as well. Right. They listened to me. Like I can actually open my mouth and people like listen to what I said. Plus I'm funny. Always been a funny guy. So – with that. Life of the party and the encyclopedia. Absolutely. Well, Frank, absolutely, I have that. a question. Can you describe for us and for our, our listeners basically what it is like being in the neo-Nazi movement and what missions were and what kept you involved in it for so long? Okay. So just to give you a little bit more of the background of it, it's like I grew up hearing things. So I got the black, white, the Latino issue. I get it. I'm fist fighting with these kids. I can grasp that hate. And also, it's also just all these rates, up to the Proud Boys, up to today's stuff, the Oath Key. It's all a big bait and switch. 
It's people who say, I want to be proud of my heritage because they could be proud of their heritage. So why can't I be proud of my heritage? And then you go to these meetings where we're supposed to be proud of our heritage. And all we do is talk about other people. Mm, we never talk about telling. our stuff. Interesting. Never, you, you can only talk about Leif Erikson so much, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, like, but the, I remember hearing things about Jews as a kid. Like, just growing up in my neighborhood, I would hear things like, how do you start a Jewish parade to roll a penny down the street? I never got the stupid joke. Didn't get it. So, I would, whatever. But then I would hear things like, yeah, I went to the store today and John didn't give me the right change back. Johnny tried to Jew me. And everyone would laugh. Even my family, just a neighborhood racism, you know, and everyone laughed. And I remember asking my uncle, I remember this conversation. I said, because again, I like being funny. I like knowing why people are laughing. And I was like, why is that so funny? Like, what's the deal? My uncle goes, well, see, Jews are notorious for money. And you know what, Frank, you don't get it now. You'll get it when you're older. Actually a funny joke, right? That type of thing. When I go to my first neo, and to tell you also, when I hung around the neo-Nazis at nightclubs and parties when I first started getting around them guys I noticed people feared them and I love that I love seeing fear in other people's eyes towards us and that's sick and it's wrong and it's broken but I'm telling you as a 14 year old athletic kid getting into this I'm secret I'm really just a seven to nine year old kid who's not developed anymore and I fear everything I fear my parents I fear my step parents I fear neglect I fear if I was gonna have enough food to eat I fear my school I fear everything and now people fear me bet it's on so just to go on a little bit further I go to like so I I, I joined this group but I just you know, don't have the grasp of everything, but I would go and I would hear people start talking about Jews and they would say that the Jews are the seed of Satan and it goes back to some Bible verses that they would pull up because again, this is all Christian, the stuff there, it's a Christian identity is the name of the religion. But I remember when they start talking about how the Jews secretly siphon money off from the Federal Reserve and they give it all to Israel so they could build up their army and da da da. In those talks, I got the joke. I must be older. My uncle told me I'll get it when I'm older. Yeah. And so. You're all grown up now. Yeah, I'm grown up now. I know what the adults know. I know the truth and the secrets of the world. And so I grasped onto this thing. And now I work with a lot of former white supremacists now. I've helped do interventions for years on people after I got out. But just want to say this, like when you ask a lot of people why they got into it, it was because it pissed off their parents. You know, it pissed off these people. Guys, I was a little different. I got into this for survival. So I grabbed onto every word they said, and I started to echo it. And I got good at echoing their thoughts, my thoughts now, echoing it and preaching it and arguing with the adults about things. I'm a 14-year-old kid pulling out biblical verses and also talking about the Federal Reserve. And the adults are like, what the hell is wrong with this? You know, they wouldn't argue with me. They'd be like, whatever. And, and everyone else would listen. So I get real big into recruiting and getting people into the, my crew, into these groups. And Pennsylvania in this time, and this is not just because of me, but I helped in this, is Pennsylvania in the early 90s, and you look at all the stats, the leading hate state in America, Pennsylvania. So what we did a lot was to keep our image up because we wanted people to know that we were crazy, we are nuts, we are tough, we're whatever in our image, in our heads, because it's all about ego, is that we would go out and do things to people, mostly, and not just to black people. Like people think we go around black neighborhoods. A bunch of neo-Nazis going through West Philly is not safe. 
right? Just be honest. So what we did was, you know, we would look for the left-wing groups. There's a lot of left-wing punk rock groups that were anti-racist groups, the Antifa groups at the time. And we would just build this army that we would go and take over their little turfs in Philly. And then also, you know, we torment a synagogue somewhere. We would go into the gay sections. My first case I ever caught as a neo-Nazi was for a gay bashing. So we just went out and did things to cause terror. We would watch Clockwork Orange and then go try and imitate Clockwork Orange, like when they beat the homeless people up and make them sing Singing in the Rain. Like we would imitate this stuff. And these were the um, missions. These were missions, yeah, our terror squad missions. And I heard an interview that you did or you, you kind of described your first mission, if you will, of it was kind of a party and, and they, some of your friends were like, okay, stand back. You know, you, there's going to be a fight. You know, we don't want you to get hurt. But you ultimately did kind of get involved and mentioned that it was kind of a overwhelming, in a good way, kind of experience because you finally felt like you were the one doing the beatings instead mm -hmm. of taking them. Absolutely. Is that where seeing the fear in people's eyes was the rush? You that felt was, powerful? Absolutely. I mean, I felt no power in my life. My life was, I had nothing, guys. I had nothing. And now I finally have something, something to identify with, something that gives me purpose and meaning. And on top of that, I build camaraderie with other guys who are believing and talking the same thing. And I'm getting accolades all the time because I was a tougher kid. I just was. I'm just a, a tougher Philly kid who, you know, I'm, most of the guys we were recruiting. Well, I recruited a lot of guys out of my neighborhood. That was what made our army kind of so strong at the time was for so long, these left-wing groups were like suburban kids coming down in the Philly to hang out around the punk rock areas. I was getting tough Irish kids and Italian kids from my neighborhood, like, who can back me up in two seconds, who grew up street fighting and we just grew up fighting. And so, yeah, but then a lot of the times too, again, we just kind of made the, the movement in the city at the time, very popular. We took over a whole alleyway that used to be famous for being a punk rock alleyway. And we turned it into skinhead alley and girls came along, you know, no matter what girls come along with the bad boy image. And so, yeah. Well, I think kind of like going off of that kind of you were getting accolades, you were very popular, obviously embracing this a lot. So is that kind of how you ended up becoming the spokesperson, if you will, for the movement? Like how did that come about and what all did that entail? And could you give us a little background on your public access show you had called The Reich? Yep. I'll tell you how it first started. For some reason, people did think I was smart. But I was getting a tattoo. We had our own neo-Nazi tattoo shop in Reading, Pennsylvania. It was like kind of like our, it was kind of like our general hospital of the movement. Like in the, you know, like everything happened at the tattoo shop, and that's where we just all hung out all the time. And it was our cornerstone to our little movement at the time. So I was there one day getting tattooed, and while I'm getting tattooed, ABC News calls the tattooist, and as he's tattooing me at the time, this is God shot for whatever reason. They said, "Hey, we'd like to talk to your youngest." smartest racist that you have and he's talking he goes hold on one second and just gives me the phone while i'm getting tattooed he goes here talk to these people so i talk to them they say hey we like for you to bring you up to new york put you up in a hotel you know like this 15 year old runaway kid who's like just hanging out going living it in the movement i don't live at home anymore i'm living with the movement wherever i can go live and i said sure whatever and they're like yeah you can come on and talk about your beliefs well i go on and the tv show is a setup 
I go there and there's like a hundred little kids and you can find this piece on YouTube. So I think it was Ted Koppel or no, no, it was like one of the big people that was for ABC News at the time, host the show. And on the show, they bring out Jane Elliott, who does the whole brown eye, blue eye theory, right? They bring her out and she's like trying to berate me in front of everybody. And she's like using her brown eye, blue eye theory to me. And she's like, and I have a tattoo on top of my head. My face was all black and blue from getting jumped by Antifa a couple, just a couple nights before this concert. So I had a big black and blue mark kind of on my face. And so it looked like a street thug, which I was. And so she starts kind of berating me going, how could you say you're the master race when the brown eye people were first, right? And as everyone's like, oh, she's got this kid. I just looked at her and said, ma'am, it never says what color Adam and Eve's eyes were. So I bust out some biblical shit on them. And the whole show was like, want me to a stop. Like, oh, where are we going to go next with this kid? Because I'm like, have some things. And there's this little girl that steps up to me and she's a Jewish girl. And she's like, I want to know why you hate me. And I was like, I don't hate you. I just love my race. And I using the pitch of the, again, I'm proud of my heritage. And when I did that show, it was national. and. Everyone in the movement that watched that show knew me as the brown eye, blue eye guy. They're like, wow, you're that guy. You're so smart. In that time, guys, I become just a raging alcoholic for one. I got to be honest about that. It's in my genes. And that's there's no drugs allowed in the movement I was part of because everyone was doing so much criminal activity that we didn't want no drug addicts a part of this because just street knowledge here is drug addicts are the first people to snitch. If you got them in an interrogation room, they're going to snitch on you faster than anybody else because they have loyalties to their drug and to staying high, not to the movement and to their real homies, you know? So Yeah, if they get arrested for being on drugs or selling drugs, they're going to just, they're not going to give up the drug. They're going to give up everybody else that's, you know, around them gotcha. doing horrible stuff. Yeah. So I know that. So anyway, alcohol becomes a huge part of our deal and- in that time, I'm becoming very popular around the, you know, just around the movement for getting things going and, and always partying with everybody. And But I start getting a lot of warrants for my arrest. I mean, there was a lot of violence everywhere, a lot of stolen guns issues and, and a lot of strong arm robberies and kidnappings. And people are, you know, I start getting these warrants for my arrest all over the place. And the movement's kind of like, look, you, you know, you do a lot of good work. We basically can't kill you because then a lot of people will turn on us. But basically, we got to get rid of you somehow. So they said, we're going to put you out in Indiana. They said, we're going to ship you out to Indiana. There's a safe house out there. You have all these warrants for your arrest. So go live out in the safe house. They're all juvenile warrants, but let's get you far enough away from here. But there's people out there waiting for you. So I take this bus. I had some money at the time from a heist. I took this bus out to Indiana. I'm going to go live a little bit off this money. When I get out there, I'm living in a safe house with all these older neo-Nazis who were wanted in their part of the country. It was a guy from Oklahoma, a guy from Texas, a guy from Cleveland. All these guys were wanted and were living there. So I'm sorry, Frank. So in theory, you're living there with some very dangerous people in theory. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm living there with people who are hell-bent on causing a race war. That's what they talked about every day. That was their job. That's what we talked about all day long in that that place was – and at the time, Yugoslavia was breaking up into a, a race war basically, which you know later on broke up Yugoslavia. And these guys were talking about like trying to get over there and become mercenaries and you know. And I'm like, dude, I don't even know where I am in this country. Why do I want to go over to freaking Europe somewhere? But whatever. I would listen to them talk. and but And that's all they did was talk all the time. Talk, talk, talk. 
And I liked hanging out on the streets. I liked going to nightclubs. I liked the recruiting. I liked being around girls. <laughs> and so I would like sneak out. You know, I'm 16 at the time. I'm 16 years old. So I would sneak out of the house all the time. I would get in trouble. I'd violate the rules of the safe house. Um, it just wasn't a good fit for me. So anyway, I get a, con a job working for a concrete guy. I can tell this story real quick just because it's very poignant. It's <laughs> Every word I'm about to tell you is the truth. It's been researched in my book and researched over and over again. So, but it's, I get a job working for a guy doing concrete who was not a racist. In fact, he was like obsessed with Oprah Winfrey, who was just becoming big at the time. And so he's this white guy and he used to smoke weed all day at work. And he was so funny because he would like, we would laying some concrete or putting some stucco on the walls. And he'd be like, Frank, you want to hit? And he hit his bowl. Now he's my boss. And he hit a bowl. Be like, you want to hit? And I'd be like, nah, man, that stuff's ruining the white race. And he'd be like, yeah. I own a business. You're homeless. I'm ruining the right race. Good one, Frank. Like he was, fun, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, he saw through it. Yeah, yeah. So he was like, "Whatever, dude. You fucking knucklehead." But one day he gave me a chance to. I kept going over to these Springfield, Illinois skinheads, who were a whole other group of neo Nazis, and I liked them. They they were younger. They weren't living in safe houses. They still were going to high school. Some of them, again, I'm high school age, and they kind of did popular things. They went hung out at skate parks and did all that stuff. So I was like, "Oh, I want to go hang with." Them. And they had girls. They had girls. They had tons of girls that hung out with them. So I was like, "I want to." I'm noticing a theme guys. here. Yeah. <laughs> So my boss says, all right, well, I'm going to take you to my apartment in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is right on the border. And he says, it's Friday. It was Friday. It was the end of the day. He goes, I'll bring you to my place. I'll buy you a case of beer. He, I, he knew I drank a lot. And he said, I'll buy you a case of beer. You sit at my apartment. I'm going to go out with my girlfriend tonight and spend the night at her crib. You stay at my place and I'll come back and get you in the morning. And I was like, all right. So he drops me off there and he had like nothing. He didn't have a TV in his apartment. It was just a work apartment. He had like an alarm clock radio you know, a couch bed and, you know, whatever. So I sit in that place and I start drinking, get all drunk, being stupid, depressed, sad, whatever. And, you know, alcohol is a depressant, obviously. And the smartest thing to do is when you're depressed is drink more of a depressant. So I decide in that time that I want to cut my wrist because it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I wrote the suicide note that, like, no one knows who I am. No one even knows. No one in my family even knows I'm in Terre Haute, Indiana. My family, no one in my family has no idea where I am. And I just got drunk and stupid and cut my wrist and walked outside my boss's apartment because I, you know, they were drunk wounds. They weren't like really death wounds here. But I don't know. And so I walk outside the apartment and here someone sees me and they know that I'm not the guy that lives in that apartment and they see me all covered in blood. So they think I killed the guy that does live in that apartment. So they call the Terre Haute Police Department. Terre Haute Police Department come and I give them a fake name because I have warrants for my arrest. They bring me to a mental hospital. But the name of the place was called Crazy Kate's. That's what they called this mental hospital, Crazy Kate's. Really? Yeah. Well, The that's official the name? Call. No, the official oh, okay, name. Oh, okay, okay. Official name. No, official name was Catherine Hamilton's. Okay. Catherine, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they all called Crazy Kate's. <laughs> so they take me to Crazy Kate's and I'm locked in this mental institution where eventually after like the second day, I give the doctors and the people that run the hospital my real name. And they find all the warrants for me. And so they tell the police, like, yo, this guy actually has all these warrants for his arrest. Or they told the police my real name, and then they found whatever. I'm not sure I wasn't previous to that conversation. But all I know is word gets back to me is that they're just going to wait and figure out a way to ship me back to Philly 
so I can go get my warrants taken care of. Because as the doctor said, it'd be a good idea if you want to stop being depressed and alcohol is go home and take care of your problems. Like, yeah, okay, let me go back to the all black juvie hall that I've been in three times already and fist fought every day in there. Yeah, let me go back. Well, I didn't fist fight every day in there. I actually survived pretty good in, in the Philly juvie halls. But anyway, so I'm like, yeah, let me go back there. That's going to be a great idea. But so I called these neo-Nazis from Springfield, Illinois. I said, you guys got to come up here. My window that I'm in happened to just be one of the only rooms in this unit that my window overlooks this parking lot. And I'm up, you know, 25 feet in the air on the second story of this hospital. And these guys show up in the middle of the night and they start busting out my window from the ground with bricks and bullets and whatever else they were shooting and throwing through it. And the, the window to spider webs and what happened was i put all my furniture in my room against my hospital door so that the orderlies the big heavy set guys that come and sit on you when you're acting crazy that they can't come get me but just so you know and anyone else that will listen to this and anyone that does know this is that all mental hospitals your doors never push in they always pull open so you can't do that I had all the furniture against my door. The orderly just opened my door and then all my furniture is just sitting there. And they're like, what are you doing? And I just leaped out the window, just jumped out the window and landed. was getting athletic. So I just bounced right up safe and get into the car, make my way to Springfield, Springfield, Illinois. As soon as I get there, I get into a fist fight with some Antifa kids at the, at this mall, like four days in that, because that's all I do. And just be violent and with this fight happened the police come they arrest me take me as a juvenile and then somehow they find out i think i told them or someone might have told them my real name and they find all the warrants for me well this the state of pennsylvania the state of new jersey and the state of delaware whatever cities my warrants were in at the time all three of them together were like he's a juvenile we're not going to extradite him he's too far away these are all stupid crimes, you know, whatever. It was a strong arm robbery on one of them, but they're like, he's a juvenile. Just let it, we're going to drop the warrants. So they all dropped their warrants on me. So now I become, so I get in this little bit of trouble, which takes away this whole big trouble that's been hovering over my head for about a year now. All of them are all gone. The police let me out. I get bailed out, whatever it was. And now I'm allowed to be me. So I start recruiting at the high schools. And this is getting to the TV show, but recruiting kids at high schools was so easy for me because at the time, you know, everywhere, there was a lot of punk rock, skater, goth kids that hung out. And my friends, my skinhead friends that were lived there were friends with these kids. They're, that's the kind of the circle we ran in. Well, when we go to this high school, these two big high schools in Springfield, those kids were constantly picked on by the jocks. And now I show up with a big swastika tattooed on my neck and tattoos on my head and I'm hanging out. You know what? No one messed with them when I was there. So now these kids like hanging out with me. They like me. They liked all that. So these kids started to want to join. Well, at that time, I go to this cable access network, which anyone can do this no matter what you believe. You can go to cable access and have a show. It's freedom of speech. As long as you don't ask for money or promote violence, you can go and have a show. So we go, me and this other guy go to the cable access channel at the time and said, hey, we want to have a show. And they were like, all right. And they were like, we'll give you a show. And this show was, we didn't do like the other rate, because there was other racist TV shows out at the time called Race for Reason, a couple of them like in Idaho, a couple in California. And they were just two guys who believed the same thing sitting on a thing for an hour talking about how they believe the same shit, right? Boring. Yeah. Fucking boring. Echo chamber. Yeah. Like, you know. And so anyway, it was just super boring. And I was like, I believe this shit and this show is fucking driving me crazy. 
So um, we did a show where we did little skits and we like had little jokes and people started watching this show. Not only that, the media was writing about our show, the local normal press media were like, hey, there's this neo-Nazi show on. So everyone's getting to know us and recruiting all these new kids. Well, there was this one anti-racist kid that kind of was hanging around and my friends were friends with him. They all grew up with this kid, but he was like a anti-racist kid, like an Antifa guy. And I didn't like it. Like I was getting sick and tired of them thinking he was cool. And I'm like, no, I just was in a war with these guys in Philly, like a full on drag out war. Like, we're not going to let this guy come around because he's going to start stealing our new recruits and say, oh, you shouldn't be, you know, I, whatever was in my head. So we kidnapped them. We kidnapped them and tortured them for hours. And that's what eventually got me put in prison. When you say tortured him for hours, what does that mean? You know, just beat him, pistol whipped him, kicked him, tortured him, just beat him. And did you think, like, I guess, was there any plan at that point that you would just at some point release him and everything would be fine because y'all have gotten away with so much at this point? Well, we were holding him for ransom. That's what we were doing. Oh, okay. and, uh And we just couldn't. There was no one that would pay his ransom, unfortunately. We couldn't find no one that was like, yeah, we'll put up the money for him. So in the kidnapping game, you have three hours, three hours to make your ransom demands and get it met. If not, you're treading on really dangerous water. It's too long. And we'd had them for like seven hours. So we knew. We told them we were going to come back for them. But I think it was Christmas Day or Christmas. Yeah, it was like Christmas Eve morning or Christmas Day. We let them go because we knew, you know, so we let them go. And, of course, he went to the hospital because some of the damage. He had some wounds that wouldn't stop bleeding in his head and his face. And so he went to the hospital. And the hospital, you know, obviously what happened to him. Now, you got to know these people in this town, I have a tattoo on top of my head that says, Made in Philly. So the cops and all the people know I'm not a local. I'm, uh, right? <laughs> a little bit of a giveaway. Yeah, yeah. So the police were really active in trying to find a reason to get me in. So now they finally had it. So I knew that they were looking for me for this kidnapping and we videotaped the torture of this guy and we showed it to a bunch of people just because we thought we were cool and funny and this is pre-YouTube, this is pre-internet. So you literally had to show somebody a video of us doing this and obviously the cops found out about it and they found up getting a copy of the tape and so we know I'm in trouble. But I think I'm smarter than the cops. I sneak back into Springfield, Illinois to do the next taping of my TV show because I wouldn't be at my own TV show, right? So I sneak back into town, go to go do the taping of the TV show, and there was all these undercover cops and stuff in there. And as soon as I kind of sat down for a second, they pulled guns out on me and told me to get to the ground. And for the first time in my life, charging me as an adult, even though I was still 17, because they were just like, we're done with you, man. Like, Was it super different from the juvenile places you had been in before? Yeah, yeah. Because in juvie, you got a lot of super immature really? kids who don't care about nothing. When you're in a county jail, a big and this is a big county jail. It's not like some little. It's the state capital of Springfield, so they have a huge county jail because they hold federal inmates and people being held on federal crimes. Huge. It's like a huge building in downtown Springfield, Illinois. But these are all guys who are smart enough to know. Like I'm waiting trial. I don't want to get in any more trouble. I was, you know, I want to prove to the judge I'm a good boy. So not that everyone, you know, there were fights and stuff, but it was right. more under control. And then you had more, there wasn't so much gang activity in the county jail neither. It's, I mean, it's there, but it's, when you're waiting your trial, you're sitting right next to a rival gang member all the time. Cause you're just, so yeah, it was a little different. It was a little different. Yeah. So once you got in, you know, you're in prison, it's a little bit more 
we'll say under control slash not nearly as kind of explosive of an environment, but we know it's there that you kind of start to change your beliefs about everything that you've held for the past since you were 13, 14. So can you kind of describe for us how that came about, like where the shift began while you were in prison? Well, yeah, it started. So I was in the hole. I was in segregation for a while in the county jail. So I had to go back to the county jail. In the county jail, because of my age and my crime was very high profile, it was on the news all the time, you know, local neo-Nazi TV show hosts, you know, kidnapping charges on the news all the time. So it was a kind of high profile deal. So they keep me away from being harmed because I was young. They kept me in segregation. And eventually I worked out a deal with God. I did kind of in a way. I, I fasted towards God. I was reading in the Bible one day if I fasted. Because a lot of people find God in prison and in jail, especially in the county jail. A lot of people find God because when you have a public defender, you you need God. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> so mm-hmm. sad to say. So, and I had a public defender. I tell you the story just because I have to give credit where credit's due. I was reading the story in the Bible about if you fast, you don't eat, and God will reveal himself to you. Now, by this time in the county jail, I'm in this hole. I'm talking to myself all the time because I'm in a single-man cell all by myself all the time. And I start talking to myself, having very vivid, crazy things. And, you know, that's what happens. It starts to drive you crazy. But I start reading this part about the Bible in the Bible where it talks about the fasting. And it says, if you fast, God will reveal himself to you, but you cannot brag or boast that you're fasting. You can't go around going, look at me, hey, everybody. God's my boy. And I'm fasting for three days that was my plan and i'm fasting because i'm like yo god i want you to kill all the guards i want you to knock down the walls and i want you to pop my door on monday so i can go home that's what i want so i'm going to do that so i start fasting and they would come to feed me and i would refuse to eat because i'm in the cell block where they slide the food in your cell and i would slide the food right back out they would ask me am i refusing to eat i say yes they say are you on a hunger strike i say no so after three days of this, the warden comes in, or the guy that runs the case, it really wasn't a warden, he was like the head lieutenant of the county jail, the sheriff's department. He comes in and he pulls me out of my cell and wants to make sure that I'm not being mistreated because, again, this will look somewhat bad if, you know, the neo-Nazi dies in their possession. So he says, why are you not eating? And I felt like telling him, like, yo, dude, you better be prepared. You better go home and say your goodbyes to your family because you're all fucking dead tomorrow and I'm going home. You know, that's what I like, I'm insane. Yeah. I'm insane. Yes. You're like in a totally different level of delusion at this point. But he's like, why are you not eating? I say, I can't tell you. He says, well, how about this, Mr. Mink? He says, if you're not trying to hurt yourself, if you eat tomorrow, I'll put you in general population. And I was like, for you, Warden, sure, I'll eat. But I'd already planned on eating. But I was like, made it for, I was like, sure, Warden, for you, I'll eat, I'll eat tomorrow, which I'd already planned on eating. So Monday morning comes, I eat, he comes and gets me, says, let's go. And for the first time really in my life, this overwhelming sense and feeling of a being who said, Frank, I'm not going to give you what you want, but I'll give you what you need. I'm going to get you out of the cell block. So I went in the general population where I meet my first friend, who was this kid named G, this young black kid, you know, in there, we converse with each other. It doesn't matter to the county jail. I didn't know how to play spades. He taught me how to play spades. In fact, he taught me how to cheat playing cards and me and him would go play the older inmates all the time and we would cheat and who would think it's just like white man can't jump who would think this white kid and this black kid are going to cheat and know how to cheat with each other but we did and so we go around and we you, you play for peanut butter and jellies which i love peanut butter and jellies so we would play for other people's peanut butter and jellies anyway me and him be kind of become friends and i get sent upstate 
And then shortly after I get sent upstate, he gets sent upstate. Now, up in state prison, it's just not a tough guy thing. This is just take it for what it's worth. I had nothing to fear when I got up there. I'm a young neo-Nazi who had a TV show. The neo-Nazis and all the Aryan groups that are up there know who I am. I'm like a little celebrity. Like they took pride in protecting me and letting me be a 17-year-old in there. Uh, I turned 18. I was getting up there. I turned 18. But I got to do whatever I want. They knew I was a city kid. You hear the way I talk. You know, these were all bikers from southern central Illinois. So, but I still got along with, like, they were just guys when you're like, why do you hate black people? I just hate black people. But then when people would talk to me, I'm like, well, the Jews do this, and the black community does that. And they're like, damn, like, you know your shit. Like, you're deep. Like, I was a deep racist. In fact, the funny part that happened was, in prison, we have men who dress like women. That's just the way they live. That's why there's not so much rape in there, because there's men who live and do that for, that's their lives. And so there was a, we called them the queens. There was a black queen on our cell block. And she tried to talk to me one day and I kind of brushed her off. I was like, whatever. And later on that night, I was sitting with a bunch of my Aryan friends and that queen came by me again and she was like, hey, what's up? You're cute. Just, you know, just messing around, whatever. And kept on walking, right? And one of my Aryan guys, one of the kind of big Aryan guys at the time goes, see that, Frank? And he's trying to be loud, and he's trying to act like he knows what he's talking about. And he's like, see that, Frank? How about that, huh? When the master race takes over, he's going to get shot twice. He's black and he's gay. And I was like, nah, guys, that's a good thing. And they were all like, ew, what are you down with that gay? And I was like, no, guys, if he's black and he's gay, he's not going to be with a woman. He's not going to reproduce his race. He's get it? And they were all like, damn dude like that's deep shit right there like so from that point on i was kind of one of the smartest racists they'd ever met but look to get along with people sometimes i mean i g shows up i start playing cards with him again g was a super funny kid man he was just funny he, he reminds me of the funniest things he reminds me of like a kevin hart like he was really short and really small but he would bust on anybody and he always had a great comeback no matter what you said to him you could be wearing the same exact clothes he's wearing he was going to bust on you for the way you wore your clothes and he would have you rolling just so fucking funny and so one day those guys were playing football because i played football with all the white dudes sometimes but they sucked i mean they were just bikers they don't know how to cradle a football they don't know how to dribble a basketball they know how to fix your transmission at two years old they don't know how to do these other things these kids knew how to play I knew how to play. I grew up in Philly playing these games my whole life. So I would say to the black kid, yo, let me play. And then and again, I got a big swastika on my neck. But I'm like, let me play. And the white guys all knew how good I was. I mean, they'd seen me play against them and knew that I tore them up all the time. And I talked trash and da-da-da-da-da. So to them, they were like, oh, yeah, let them play, you know. You know, the black kids eventually caught on. Like, wow, this kid's pretty good. Like, I would do kickoff returns. And knowing that the other my teammates were not going to block for me. And the other team was just going to run down the field and rip my head off. And I would probably quit like other white kids who swore that they were good. But they didn't know I was as good as I was. I mean, it's just I'm not being egotistical. I'm just being real. I could put sick little spin moves. I'm very short to the ground. My legs are stocky as hell. I'm just, I could hit a hole and I'm gone. And when I'm scared, I'm fast. But when I'm scared, I'm double fast. And I would run these kickoff returns either back or get us good field position. Then they made me a wide receiver. And they just knew. Like, they started calling me Steve Largent. That's all the black kids just knew me as Steve. Steve Largent was this little white wide receiver for Seattle Seahawks. So just, you know, doing my thing in prison. Anyway, I just make some friendships with these kids. I mean, I 
would sit and talk with them a good bit just because they made me laugh when we talked about city shit. But I still hung with my Aryans. This is an American History X where I turn on my movement in there. It didn't happen like that at all. I still knew that my job was to get out, be the neo-Nazi leader when I get out of this joint, go back to doing what I was doing, get ready for this race war that we talked about all the time. This is just prison. I'm just making it. So when I had my daughter and I was in prison, I didn't want to go to my older Aryans, the older bikers, because they're nasty dudes. Like, you go up and talk about your girlfriend and you're a young inmate. They're going to be like, yo, your girl's blowing your friends while you're in here. Just get over it. You know, and you're like, oh, don't say that. You know, but you think about it for all day long that she probably is, right? That's just what we do. It's wrong with us. When I had my daughter, I didn't want to go to my older Aryans and right away and be like, yo, guys, I'm a dad. Because they're like, oh, shit, she's going to lose that baby weight. Now she's going to be good again. You know, that it should be knocked up before you get out of here. You know, shit like that, they would say. So I seen G and Joe and Tony and those dudes. And it was like, yo, guys, I had my kid. Now they're the same age as me, too. So and some of them had kids and had kids on the way. And they're like, that's what's up. You know what I mean? That's what's up. I mean, these are the first people I'm telling I have my kid is to black kids. So when I get released from prison, again, I'm just cool with everyone, but I'm still a neo-Nazi. I get out of prison. I'm trying to do this thing the right way. Not the right way. I'm trying to be a dad, but I'm still a racist thug criminal, and it's just not working. My ex wants nothing to do with me, which she should have nothing to do with me. I was insane. I was absolutely insane. So she kind of gets away from me and kind of like, I really don't want you around our daughter. You kind of still talk all that bullshit. And so things weren't working well. So I went back to Philly. And when I get back to Philly, I'm like almost like a hero in a way because I went to prison. I kidnapped a rival. I had the TV show. Everyone knows all the shit about me. Everyone's like, ah, oh, Frank's coming back. And I helped start that movement that was really big still in Pennsylvania. So I get back, and, but I would just go to these meetings and I would hear these black kids, I hear guys talk about all oh, black people are this way, you know? And I'm like, eh, that's not true. That's kind of, it's the same things I used to say five years earlier. And now I'm hearing someone else say it, and I'm like, that sounds so stupid. But I said, you know what? I'm going to still hang around this movement because you know why? This is where I got my clout. This is where I get my pull. This is where I get my ego fix all the time. And I could still stick to the fact that I hate Jews. I didn't meet any Jews in prison. None of them ever changed my mind. So because this story is all about God, I'm home. I'm trying to get a job, but I have a swastika on my neck. These are not good people skills. Nobody's hiring me. HR is not like, definitely grab this dude. So I'm just not getting work. And a buddy of mine said, I can get you a job at an antique thing for the weekend, carrying in and out antique furniture. I said, yeah, I'll take the job. hundred bucks a day, I'll take the job. It's for three days only. And as soon as I said, I'll take the job, my buddy goes, yeah, but the dude that owns the company is a Jew. Do you want the job? And I was like, I don't care. I don't have to talk to this guy, do I? And he said, nope, I am. In fact, he, I said, I, he goes, I told Keith Brookstein, that's the guy's name. He goes, I told Keith Brookstein all about you, that you might need some work, but you're just, and he goes, he doesn't give a rat's ass what you believe, just don't break his furniture. And I showed up and I worked for this man. And as I worked for this man, he was a very intelligent man. He seemed kind. He always took care of lunch. He always made sure we were okay. But at the end, I thought in my anti Semitic ignorant way is that he's going to Jew me because I had made $600 in tips alone and he only owes me $300. So he's going to say, you, you made your money. So I waited to start an argument with them. 
And, you know, it's funny as a lot of us do that, not anti-Semitic ways, but, you know, like, you're like, I'm going to go to work today. And if that dude says one more thing, I'm going to jump on him. And you sit in the, and you plan the argument out in your head, you know, unless both of you two are so spiritual, you'll float right off your asses. But we all do it. Everyone does it. So I had this thing where I was waiting for Keith to not pay me my money. And when he came up to me and I had this argument waiting and he says, how much do I owe you? And I'm like, $300. And he's like, okay, here's one, two, here's 300. And he's like, here's an extra hundred bucks. You're a really good worker. So then he goes, do you have a ride home back to South Philly? Cause we're in South Jersey. He goes, do you have a ride home tonight? And I said, no. He goes, I'll give you a ride home in the truck. Drives me back over into South Philly, takes the truck down those little narrow streets for me, tells me about how he used to live in that neighborhood back when our neighborhood was Jewish in the 50s and early 60s. There's a big Jewish congregation in that neighborhood, and they all moved to a different part of Philly now because it's all Irish and black and Latino and Italian now. And so he's like, oh, I used to live around here, blah, blah, blah. We're just talking. And he says, what do you do for a living? And my swastika is blazing in his face in this truck because he's driving. I'm the passenger, so my swastika is right there. And he goes, what do you do for a living? I said, I point to the swastika. I said, I don't do anything, man. He goes, well, why don't you come work for me? And I went and worked for this man. And just a great man. And always was kind. And he had tons of employees at different storefronts. And he had a warehouse where he refinished furniture and got the storefronts always packed. And, man, he just was a brilliant dude. And my job was a lot was to drive with him in the truck to go pick up new furniture to get bring it back to the warehouse to get it refinished and get it into the storefront by Fridays. So Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays were on the truck driving all over New York, New Jersey, Philly. And I would drive with this man, and we would talk about the O.J. Simpson trial. That was the big thing going on at the time. And we talk about, like, DNA and this really interesting conversations about life and this and that. And with all the trauma, whatever people want to call it in my head, I still think I'm stupid, you know, at the time. I always would think I was stupid. I'm secretly stupid. If I make a mistake, it's, I'm stupid. I'm so stupid. So one day I broke this marble top table in front of Keith on accident which I should have done the right thing, and I didn't do the right thing, and the marble fell off the table, and it broke. And I was like, Keith, I'm so stupid. I'm so sorry. I'm so stupid. And I've been working for him for about six months at the time. And he came over to me. I'm still a neo-Nazi guy, still shaving my head and everything, wearing neo-Nazi boots and everything. And he comes over to me, grips me up by the back of my neck, and says, stop saying you're stupid, you fucking idiot. Clean it up, and let's go. And I cleaned up the marble top table, and we get back into the truck, and he just... That day, whatever it was, I felt as low as I, low as I could be because I broke this furniture. I know he's probably going to take it out of my pay. It's a big deal. Oi, oi, vey, what do you do to my furniture, Frank? You know, he's like, oi, oi. And we're in this truck, and he just unloads on me about how smart I am and how he hates that he hears me say I'm stupid. He's like, you're one of the smartest people I know, Frank. Why would you say you're stupid? And he goes, he said something to me that stuck with me to this day, which whenever I do feel stupid, I think of these words. He said, Frank, smart people can fake being dumb, but dumb people can't fake being smart. You just are. He lets me out of the truck, gives me my full envelope that day for all my pay. He didn't take nothing out of my pay. And I walked home that day back to my mom's because I was living back at my mom's again, out of prison and all that. And as I was walking back, guys, I was just like, this is it. I remember like looking up at God like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, just trying to hold on to this shit that every turn someone is being put in my life to be like, who the fuck are you, Frank? To be judging the world around you all the fucking time. Like, you're like, literally, I might not be the stupid, but I am kind of one of the worst of the worst here. Who are you? 
So that was the day I made the big decision. Like, I'm done. Like, I just know this belief is wrong. It had nothing to do with my friends, nothing to do with all these other. It just, I knew that these beliefs at the core were absolutely wrong. And there, there was nothing right about them. And there was times, and I'll make this quick here. There was times when I would drive around Philly and I would see like a black dude selling food stamps on a street corner. 50 cents on a dollar, 50 cents on a dollar. And I'd say, well, I'll see the movement. And I'd be like, wait a minute, my mom sells her food stamps. She's the does it out of her house or an Asian woman or an Asian person would cut me off and drive and, and I would say, you know, the stereotype Asians are bad. And I'd be like, wait a minute, my aunt hit a cow this year, like a cow, you know, like they're not deer. They don't jump out in front of your car from the bushes. Yeah, the fucking, they're there. The, fucking car, the cow was standing there and she hit it anyway. So I would just no you know, offense to your yeah. hand, but that is pretty incredible. Yeah. So anyway, I was real quick. My brain started doing that to me all the time. Like whoa, 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 whoa! Stop judging, you know. But and I'll say this now because we can get into this. When I got out of the neo Nazis, where I was not allowed to do drugs, and once I got out of the neo Nazis and I moved back to my South Philly neighborhood, where drugs are a commodity, and my mom's a big drug dealer and my dad's a drug dealer in another neighborhood, I started adapting to the neighborhood. And I picked up a really nasty, nasty habit. And that was harder to get out of that than it was the neo-Nazis. You know what I'm also realizing, Frank? You probably got into that because you were realizing that up to that point in your life, you had been doing a lot of like, if you were finally realizing that all of these things that you were thinking about, all of these people, you know, was wrong and it wasn't the right way of thinking. That's a lot to process. And you might have just turned to substance and needles and stuff. To fill the hole. To, yeah, to check out, to deal. Mm-hmm. And I liked getting high. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's also like a little bit of a, you know, a vacuum that had to be filled. You had all this other stuff that was fueling you at that point. And then it's like, okay, well, I don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. So what's left? But at this point, you still had, you know, you, you've turned your we'll say changed your mind, if you will. You now have, and what's incredible to me about that is like, if that had happened at the time that you were looking for that validation when you were younger, like how different that might've turned everything, you know, might've turned out. And so I guess, thank God that it happened at some point. So I guess kind of going from that point forward, you decide to go talk to the FBI. And we kind of just want to know what prompted you to do that, what they kind of guided you to do, and how that ultimately led to you writing your book, The Autobiography of a Former Skinhead. Recovering Skinhead. A recovering. Yeah, that's okay, because the, the, the word <laughs> recovering in there is the most important part. That's why I didn't, that wasn't yeah, kind of correct. Yeah. It's just for anyone that's listening. And the, just to talk on that real quick. When I say recovering skinhead, people sometimes say, oh, so you might go back to being a racist? Is that like you might relapse? No, no, no. That's I would have to have a severe brain injury to go back to being a racist. But what I can relapse back into is my ego and my low self-esteem and my low self-worth and my know-it-allism and arrogance. Like I can relapse into that, right, real quick when I stop thinking and knowing that I am just a child of God. And everyone is a child of God, you know. So anyway, that can happen to me. And it has happened to me over the years. So the FBI happened was about six months out of the neo-Nazis, maybe a little bit longer, eight months out of of getting out of the neo-Nazis, the Oklahoma City bombing happens. And there's this fireman that runs down the street with that dead little girl in his arms, very famous, famous picture. 
And that picture just destroyed me. Absolutely. To know that I took part in that movement. That Remember I told you I was in that house in Indiana? That's all we talked about doing was blowing up federal buildings and starting the race war. And this is how we're going to start the race war was by not going and blowing up black people or Jewish people. It was starting a war with the federal government to separate this country. Right there. So people that think, oh, race war means we're going to go around and go fight the war in Southside Chicago. That's all bullshit. The race war is the white people standing up against the federal government like we have today. Anyway, so when I seen that Oklahoma City bombing and that end result, I just felt so horrible. Now, I felt like the people were going to know, hey, he was part of that stuff and they were going to pull their kids away from me. And at the time, I know, like, I'm just trying to be a good person. I'm getting deeper into drugs, but I know, like, I I don't hate and I, and I don't want harm to anybody, you know. I really don't want to harm people. And to know that people might think that about me was just horrible. And so I went to the FBI just to be like, I just want to unload my life because i just been through the most craziest life ever, which I still lived on more to live a crazier life. But just people just... I knew that if I sat on a street corner in South Philly and started telling my, you know, drug dealing friends and my, just my friends from my neighborhood, yo guys, this is where I've really been the last couple. Cause they, none of them knew where I was. I just showed back up in my neighborhood with a swastika on my neck and tattoos on my head. And they were just like, where'd you go? And I'm like, been on a little journey, <laughs> you know, and cause no one would believe me. Just another South Philly kid telling some crazy fucking South Philly stories. So I knew the FBI would believe me and know the truth. So that's why I went to them. And I just unloaded my life onto them. I was like, yeah, I did this. I was there. And what I found out later on was that the FBI, because they called me back a couple times for re-questioning and stuff, is that they would say, like, so was you there when so-and-so got stabbed at some big rally or, you know, whatever, something happened and a couple of stories. And I would say, yeah, I was there. And then was you there when this happened? And I'm like, no, I wasn't there. I wasn't in the car when that happened. They knew the truth already. And they were just seeing if I was there to either brag about myself or was I going to try to pull the whole, I was just a good guy riding with the bad people, you know, but I was just honest with them. So from there, they decided that they asked me to go speak with this group, the Anti-Defamation League. I went and spoke with this group, the ADL, and then they were like, hey, will you go speak to some school kids and stuff, which I thought they were insane. And so I went and spoke to some school kids, and it was fucking brutal and horrible and shared nothing but violence because I didn't know what else to talk about. I had no solution, really, at the time. Just I was like, I just don't do bad shit no more. I don't know. And that that wasn't good enough. So I wasn't good enough for me. So I went to the Philadelphia Flyers, started harmony through hockey with the Philadelphia Flyers, where I was like, look, in prison, we played sports. Those dudes always had my back, not just because I was good, but because I was a good teammate when I played with them. You know what I mean? And and I was like, I could teach other people how to do that. So we started Harmony Through Hockey, where we got more black kids to play the game. And then real quick, just to fast forward, that, that goes great. But then I marry a woman, and I moved to Iowa. And I restarted doing the program in Iowa, but for farm teams of other NHL teams, the Dallas Stars, the Anaheim Ducks. I started working later on for the Minnesota Wilds, AAA division. And not just, I was still entering the game to black kids, but now I got really into coaching. And by the grace of God, I have a talent to do this and to break down the game and to break down players and to build players up. And I won like 12 national championships as a hockey coach and coached an extremely high level for a kid that never played the game at any level other than street hockey. Football, I played on a high level, 
but street hockey, I never, you know, so I just knew that I loved the game. I learned how to coach. If anyone can coach, if you're a coach, you know, that's just the way it is. So I got to do that for years. When you're doing these interviews and you're doing these talks and you're doing you're doing these speaking engagements and you're telling your story over and over and over, is it at all triggering for you? No, not at all. My my job is to be a servant to God and it's through my story that I'm gonna give the best story so that people can understand and comprehend why a person would think the way I do and also give you the results and the real reasons of why being a racist is it's basically a sin. To be a racist is basically a so sin. you can separate it. You can sort of separate it because you're in a in sort of a teaching educational headspace. You're not in a reliving it moment. Well, and I was going to ask too. I mean, kind of with writing your book and doing all these speaking engagements, do you find it to be like healing for you, cathartic in some ways of kind of maybe retribution? I did for a while. I would say in the beginning, I definitely did it for as an amends. It's an immense process. I did because I don't have the greatest credit score, but I really didn't have the greatest karma score. <laughs> and I was just trying to raise that karma score up. I mean, I had a really bad because if I if there was too much for God, just, you know, at the time in my head, if I have a punishing God, it would be that I'd done so much bad that it's going to come back on my children, you know, because I'd done that much bad in the world. So and then I got to get to the point where it's not that anymore for me. It's not like a therapy to me anymore at all. I, I know what my purpose and my job is, especially at this time in our country right now. And I don't know if he's want to get into my activism now. We can bring that up in a minute. But so I know what my job is. So if I have to tell the story, I'm really good at reading a crowd and knowing like, oh, I should go this way with this because they'll comprehend this more. Or should I go more on this because this group is younger and I'm going to make them laugh, but I want them to make them understand. And so, so yeah. Now, at this point in your life, are you able to reach out to other maybe young kids that are getting caught up in the moment and get them out? I think so. I mean, I have. I've done it. I mean, I've done interventions on – I think I'm – I don't know if I've ever sent – I actually made a TV show 12 years ago about me doing an intervention on neo-Nazis. I'll send you – it was on AMC. But they never aired it. Yeah, definitely send that to us. Yeah, yeah. It's on YouTube. It's Frank Ming TV show. You have to go down and look. Actually, the sad, scary thing is that the opening scene, the opening thumbnail or whatever they call it is – it says all Muslims are terrorists just because the show was called Who Do You Hate? So you won't see me, but that's what you'll see. And then you click on that and it's of me doing the first ever recorded intervention of a, getting a neo-Nazi out ever in the world. So, I mean, I can get people out of it because the ideology is so easily fought against in the way – argued against, I want to say fought against. So – and I know – I mean, I think I was with you the other night, Todd, or whenever it was when we were – and I got the text from the one guy who I got helped get out, you know. And I told you every time he gets you – know, I also helped him – hopefully I helped him get sober and stay sober. But we'll see about that because whenever – He's <laughs> whenever he gets drunk again, he turns back into a fucking raging alcoholic racist. And I got to, you know, I don't talk to him then. I always say, call me when you're sober. But it's just part of the deal here. So, you know, I'm sure that I know that I have because I talk in common sense. I talk about for one, it's not. But you get pushback from them, right? I can imagine you get a lot of pushback. I do at first, but this is going to sound really egotistical, but I'm going to say it anyway. When I have these conversations and I don't even say interventions, just conversations with them, I hear a lot of, yeah, you're right, Frank. Yeah, you're right, Frank. You know what, Frank? You're right. And I'm not like screaming at them. I'm just pointing out facts about their life. Like, 
because they're so right. judgmental. But here are the guys, you know, just like I had been at times when I was a drug addict, not paying my child support, whatever. So I feel inferior and feel less than. So I'm going to blame it on these people, you know. And when I can point that out to somebody and say, yo, dude, your family's not even inviting you over for barbecues anymore. Because all you do is bring this ignorant, racist bullshit everywhere you go. Like your job is to be of service to your family and to your loved ones. And when they don't want you around because all you do is talk this fucking bullshit all the time, it's not cohesive for your family. And like, yeah. Yeah, the rest of everybody's not really down with what's going on. So maybe cut it out. Yeah. But I think that a big, powerful kind of fact in your story and pivot for you that I'm personally, I know you've spent a lot of time with Todd, but you know, I haven't really had the pleasure. So I'm curious as to, to how, at what point you figured out that you actually had a Jewish background (laughs) and ultimately decided to join a synagogue. Okay. So just want people to get this out now is that it wasn't like I was part of the movement and then I found out I was Jewish. Nothing to do. It was nothing like that. It was years later, probably almost 20 years later. I'm a big activist against the movement. I had done a lot with Jewish groups in my life, the ADL, Chabad, just you name it. I've just done a lot with a lot of Jewish groups at JCCs and Hillel, you name it. And so one day I was doing a documentary in Iowa. The documentary, we never got it finished, but again, clips of it are on YouTube called Is This Heaven? And it's about how Iowa, if you ever seen the, the baseball movie Field of Dreams, you know, they say, is this heaven? He goes, no, it's Iowa. So we took the name of that and we started making this documentary about how in Iowa, I was, for as funny as it is, it's mostly all white, but it's actually has this kind of core diversity into it. Like the oldest, longest standing mosque in all of North America is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, called Mother Mosque Number One. People, what? Really? So just, and fast forward to now, Iowa was the second state in the union to allow marriage equality before the federal government. So you can get married in Massachusetts and in Iowa. Anyone could get married. Because Iowa was like, you know what? Let us farm. Do your thing. Yeah, leave us alone. Yeah, yeah, leave us alone. Let us farm. (laughs) You want to get married? Married. You're you know? I mean, seriously. And uh, they also, the first woman lawyer to pass the bar was in Iowa. So they have, and the, the Fairfield, Iowa is the Maharishi University, only one in the world where you can go and learn how to do TM meditation. You know what I mean? Transcendental meditation is there. So Iowa has this crazy thing. So anyway, we were doing this documentary about that. And uh, I was like a producer and a little bit of a host of this documentary. And we went to one of my Chabot rabbi friends and said, hey, will you be part of this documentary? You know, there's not a huge congregation of Jews in Iowa, but would you be part of this documentary? And he's like, sure. And he, as we're all coming in the one day with the cameras and stuff, and he goes, <laughs> he says, so Frank, is this documentary about how you're filing a tarot when you're Jewish? And I said, man, I'm not Jewish. He goes, Mink, your last name is Jewish. M E E I N K is Ashkenazi Jewish name. And I was like, no, it's Dutch. He goes, yeah, it's Dutch Jewish. So I'm like, whatever. Now, I had heard just throughout the years, just want to take you that there was a man in LA that I met while I was making my TV show 12 years earlier from this thing, or whatever it was, years earlier, where I was at this recovery spot. And this man came up to me. And he's 100% Jewish from Canada, who now lives in LA. And he came up to me at this little hangout spot. And he came up to me just jokingly as he got introduced to me. And he goes, huh, a fellow Hebe. And I was like, I'm not Jewish, dude. I'm." And he's like, yeah, you are. And I'm like, 
I'm not Jewish. I'm actually a former neo-Nazi. And so now I'm like, I got you. I'm a former neo-Nazi who's <laughs> here making a TV show about doing interventions on other neo-Nazis. Like, I'm not Jewish, dude. And there's also a very famous guy named Matis Yahoo. I don't know if any of you guys know him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have a singer. Me and him became friends over the years. And one time we were hanging out. And he's like, you sure you're not Jewish? You really looked the part, Frank, right? So I'd heard this off and on for the last couple of years. So when he said that, I was like, whatever. So eventually, a little bit of later after that, I, I take a DNA test and find out that I am. And I'll tell you, it was like a gift from God. It just was. It was just an absolute. I'd always admired it. I admired, especially my Chabad friends who, like, Jewish traditions are just about God. Every holiday is just about God. And I just was so admired that. And things just weren't working. So and just to tell you how the now it wasn't a conversion. My rabbis will all tell you that it wasn't a conversion. I didn't convert because I grew up Catholic. I just made a transformation back. And so about three years ago, I'm going through a horrendous divorce, war of the roses divorce. I mean, at the bottom again. And I just knew I needed God. And real quick, uh, there's a moment in my life where I, I make the decision, okay, I'm going to let Hashem, I'm going to let God run my life now. And in that time, I called that guy who said to me at this recovery place one day, hey, my fellow Hebe, he had talked to me throughout the years. Me and him just would stay in touch off and on just because we had a little rapport with each other. And he, spot, he helps navigate people through recovery all over the place, like pretty big names and stuff. So we had just stayed in touch with And I called him at this, in the midst of this horrendous divorce. And I said, I'm moving to LA. You're going to become my, my spiritual advisor. I'll call him that. I was like, you're going to become my spiritual advisor. I can't do this like anymore. And he's like, okay, move to LA. So I moved to LA. And now here's this another Jewish man coming into my life who I talk to this man every day in my life to this day. Every morning I call this other man and say, whatever's going on with me or do something with steps or whatever it might be, because I have to stay accountable to another human being. And I know because I'm broken, I'm a broken drug addict, alcoholic with huge issues that if I think about myself, I either think I'm the shit or I think I'm a piece of shit. And no one can change that. That's the way my brain is broken in the way I work. But this man, and showed me that if I just dedicate myself to being a servant to God, to all of his children at any time and all the time, that my brain doesn't go that way. Because I know that I'm just the way I'm supposed to be. The bad shit I've done in my life is so that I can share with another struggling person, hey, I've been through this. Hey, you can do this. Hey, you can... Well, speaking about that, Frank, sorry to interrupt you, but speaking about that, last night was a pretty special night for you. Can you tell our listeners what you did at your synagogue last night? So, okay, to set it up was, um, so I moved to LA and then I testify, I got to bring this part up because it leads to this, is I testify in front of Congress about neo-Nazi cops, that a lot of my old friends became cops. It is what it is. I'm not saying all cops are that way. I'm not trying to go out and judge cops. It's just the fucking truth. Okay, so I testify in front of Congress in 2020 about that. And of course, the cops start threatening my life. People start threatening my life. They're going to blow my fucking brains out, blah, 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 blah. And I'm trying to gravitate towards a certain synagogue at the time. And so I was like, fuck, now I got to go into hiding. So I, at the time, I run and I go live on a boat. 
because the best place to hide out from anybody is on a boat because if anyone finds out where you are, you just move the fucking boat <laughs> and go to another slip, right? So I go and I live in this really rough part of LA that has a marina in it and I'm living in this marina and I just said, okay, I got to find a synagogue. I got to find a temple to go to and it was during the pandemic. It's in the height of the pandemic. So no one's having in-person services anyway. So perfect. Like they're not, they're not going to see me and be scared of me and all my tattoos. So I reach out to this one rabbi because all I did was Google closest synagogue to me. <laughs> so I did. And I wrote that rabbi and she writes me back and says, here's when our services are. Here's when tourist studies are. You want to start being part of this? Come on. And so for like two years now, just did everything by Zoom. So nobody kind of knew. Only my rabbi. Kind of its own little blessing. Yeah. In yeah. A way. Uh-huh. So only my rabbi and maybe a couple people that were part of the congregation knew the truth about who I was. But I would hear a lot of older Jewish people be like, oh, I love your take on the Torah. I love it. Keep coming back, you know, and all that. And so I'm like, okay, you know, and I just keep coming back and got a real good rapport on Zoom with all these people. And and so finally, my rabbi says, you know, we're coming up to a lot of high holidays right now that are about redemption. Let's have you talk. Let's have you stand in front of the congregation and tell them who and what you've been doing and how you've done this now. And so last night I got to go and, and tell them my story, but then also tell them about how powerful Hashem is in my life, how powerful God is in my life, because it really is all about, it is all about God. My whole life is dedicated. I mean, I wake up in the morning and I do my, my barukas, my, my prayers, my blessings. I wrap tefillin, which is a Jewish thing, if you don't know what that is, but it's, and I, I do these steps every morning to keep my head straight that it's not about me. It's not about me. So then I got to relate to them, like, not only, see, because you don't want to go up there and say, hey, I'm so humble, let me fucking tell you all about it, right? That's <laughs> hum humbleness kind of and humility <laughs> is an action. Yeah. It's an action. It's an action. It's an action. So I got to tell them about my activism and what I've really, really been working on, even though these cops and these bad people, not that the cops are all bad people. I got to keep stressing that because I don't want to think I'm a cop hater. I'm not a defunder. I'm not none of this. We just need real concrete police reform because we have 3.9% of the world's population, but we have 38% of the world's women's prison population. And most of that, just for anyone that's listening and wants to be back to blue type stuff, most of that is in county jails, which is beneficial to local sheriff's departments and local police departments that run the county jail. So they like filling them. It's part of the job progression. So we have to start making the stand. And in my reading of the Torah, and in my understanding of what the Psalms are and what the Proverbs were, which the Psalms are that are towards and with King David, the Proverbs are with his son and his people of King Solomon are the Proverbs. And all those things talk about, all they talk about is gaining knowledge to help the poor, gaining knowledge to help the oppressed, gaining knowledge to help your neighbor. And so what I did over the last two and a half years. And I've always kind of been on this, this topic anyway, because I've seen this stuff and, you know, just to say his name, Elijah McLean, if anyone knows the case of Elijah McLean, if you don't know that there should be police reform after Elijah McLean, then, then you're blind. 
This, they, they killed this young man who was not autistic, but truly an introvert and who had done nothing, played violence for cats. And these cops in Colorado just, just didn't like that he was walking down the street and wouldn't stop for them, even though he did nothing wrong and they killed him. And then after they found out that they killed, they did the wrong thing. They killed a person who didn't deserve to die. Other cops went back and took pictures of the imitation of them killing him because it's part of the fucking culture. So anyway, I started to read up on this and I started to gain knowledge on, on the laws that have been now pushed through that have allowed the police to pull us off from cars, which is the Pennsylvania versus Mims and how they get to just basically do pat downs of us and our cars with Terry V. Ohio. And so I just started to study as I was reading, okay, my job is to be a servant to God is to have the education because of where I come from. And obviously I'm white, I'm Jewish, but I'm white. That for me to just listen to the black community who I am, they're my teammates in this world. They are my teammates and I'm going to stand up for my teammates. And what I can do is, is echo with my voice, the truth. And me and Tata talked about this. So I'm going to bring it up again because I was in a private conversation is I was abused as a child. And when I would try to tell people, Hey, I'm, I'm being abused. Ah, you're blowing it out of proportion. Ah, it's not that bad. Ah, you're, maybe you're that bad, Frank. Maybe you need to get smacked around. Like, I heard all these things in my life. What do you think when the black community has been screaming, yo, we're being police different? Ah, oh, no, you're blowing it out of proportion. No, 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 no. We're being, poli here's some marks on us. We're being police different. Ah, you know, you're lying. No, 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 no. They're fucking publicly executing us for nine and a half fucking minutes with their knee on our neck. We're being policed differently. Well, no, they're telling the truth. And what that did to me is it made me join the neo-Nazis. What it does to the black community is it drives it crazy. It drives it fucking crazy. We've been telling you this, and now the facts and figures are in that we have mass incarceration of a country that is so prideful of our fucking freedoms. And on top of that, our founding fathers wrote the Fourth Amendment, which is the rights of search and seizure without probable cause for a fucking reason, because the British, the Redcoats were abusing, just searching us whenever they wanted. The cops have made rules that they are just as bad. They are. They pull black people out of their cars for not using a fucking blinker with their children in their cars. Do you know how bad that is? Do you know what that does to a child to watch their father or mother get dehumanized with a gun pulled on them? Do you know what that does? It breaks a community. And it's time for us to really bring rules and laws and true concrete police reform to stop this and that is now my job on this planet and it's not about frank it's not about me it's about others all the time and if i stay in that mode i'm okay i don't think about drinking or using anymore i don't now i take active measures every day to make sure that for 24 hours today I don't drink or use. I call another man every morning at 6.30 because Frank can't control his life. So I better talk to this other man and check in and get real guidance in my life so that I never have the right thought to think, oh, let me go use again. So for anyone that's a drug addict, alcoholic that's listening to me, remember that you might have had some stents sober, but the times that you thought about using again, you were still fucking sober when you had them thoughts. 
and you still went with them. Something's wrong. Something's broken. And so I come to that conclusion that if I do these right things, stand up for others, I don't have those thoughts anymore. Wow. Well, I mean, I can't even, I don't think, put into words at this moment how powerful everything that you've said has been. I mean, (laughs) both Todd and I are incredibly emotional right now. But, you know, I think it's the whole entire story is so beautiful in its own part of my French fucked up way. But the full circle that I feel like it brought to you personally is amazing, but the hope and and message you can give to everybody else is incredible. So, you know, I kind of, we know you've got other things to do and we've taken up so much of your amazing, wonderful time and we can't thank you enough, but I'd really like to kind of wrap it up by saying, you know, as far as with all this change that you've gone through, the activism that you do, the messages that you bring, kind of what are your personal biggest hopes for the future? of our next generation, you know, including the judicial system, the people being left kind of behind, what would be the perfect future for you? The perfect future for me is that when I leave this message is that if I look towards my day to make others comfortable, God will make me comfortable, right? If I look to do things for others, God will take care of me and he has. Todd knows a little bit of my personal life, what's going on with me, where I live now, how things are being handled. It's all God. So depend on him. Know he's real. He's 1,000% real and that he just wants us to be there for one another, no matter race, color, creed, and to stand up for one another. And I see a big, beautiful future for us in America coming up. We're going through a really hard time, right? And we know, and I know, that it's just about us standing up for one another and we're going to get through these tough times. And in the future of all this, we're going to look back on this time and say, oh, just like when we look back on the times when they sprayed fire hoses at people and we say, oh, okay. We're at the same point. It's just mass incarceration is the fire hose. And the last thing is that we're a tribe of people. America is a tribe of people. And we... No matter if you like it or not, we're going to be all one color in 300 years. We can't stop that from happening. It's impossible to stop that from happening. Just like the Native Americans became one color, right? As they traveled across the Barren Straits, they became one color, one tribe of people. That is going to happen. Are we going to get there with peace? And know that the reason why the other superpowers fear us is because that we're becoming a multicultural superpowers, which cannot be stopped. Can we get there with peace or are we going to have this wannabe civil war with anger and hatred and violence? So, you know, and then we also have to worry about stuff like fentanyl and drugs that are coming in. As Americans, man, we have, it's, we are so delusional about self, self, self that we need this, you know, that drugs is becoming such an answer for Americans. So we just got to stick together and know that we're going to get through this and to stop punishing each other and to start looking to help. Just, again, you make other people comfortable, God will make us comfortable. Frank, I cannot tell you how incredible today has been for us, for the listeners. Your message is so strong. It's so clear. Your purpose is so strong and clear. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us, with our listeners. And 
I think Laura and I, we're going to need a minute today's <laughs> podcast for sure. Oh, it's uh, a reflection for sure. But I mean, I thousand percent reiterate everything Todd said. I mean, this has been absolutely so powerful on so many levels. And I am just so, I just met you, but I am so proud of you. <laughs> for everything that you have not only overcome, but like taken that to the next level of helping other people, which, you know, on this, this is what we hope to do with this podcast. So you have literally, I'd be say the poster, the poster, the spokesperson, if you will, for exactly what we want in the world. And so I can't thank you enough for not just being on the show, but for everything that you do. Well, we were going to try and take a minute to breathe after that, but we're just, we're talking so much. We just need to talk about it. How are you? I am trying to regain my composure, but you know, honestly, as much as I don't know how much the listeners could kind of tell, but we definitely got pretty emotional there at the end. And, but I think what's really the most moving about everything that he has done and overcome and all of it is the just the love that he has for everybody else in the world and for it to be such a black, like, you know, pardon the kind of pun, if you will, but black and white issue, you know, to go from where he was to where he is now. It's not just like, oh, he got out and he's, you know, trying to do better. It's like he is changing people's lives daily. And I think that that includes us. I mean, that was... One of the most profound interviews I think that we've ever done. I've certainly never just burst into tears in the middle of. Right. Well, in hearing him talk about humility as action, and he told me the reason we filmed it yesterday. We filmed in this. I was there at the synagogue when he told all of uh, all the, the whole congregation. He told everybody uh, his story and came out to everybody as a former white supremacist and. You could feel the energy in the room because these were all Jewish people that have known him and embraced him. And he really, there are no words for what it was like in that room, but we were filming. And he said to me, because I said, you know, Frank, I'm, I want, I hope we get this out to every, any and everybody, you know, and he said, well, this isn't about me becoming famous. This isn't about fame at all. This is about the activism. This is about my story. If my story can impact change or any way. That's what it's about. It's about other people. And he kept, like he was at the end of this podcast, he kept stressing. It's about other people. It's about humanity. It's about our survival as people. And he, you know, I just met him maybe two months ago. And I'm slowly starting to get to know him on a personal level. And he is the embodiment of change, that it changes possible. And that's why we do this podcast. Yeah, I mean, there's a I mean, next page. I mean, he's on the... He's on the farthest page the, from where he next, started. He's on the next yeah, book. Yeah, he's on the next book. He's <laughs> in the next, like, I mean, I, and that's what we were kind of talking about and why we decided to not take a beat and to actually speak about this on here is that it's, there's so many layers to what he's been through from childhood neglect to abuse to addiction to going into neo-Nazi movement to then coming out of that. But it's like... The beauty of him coming out to his congregation, 
I felt like on so many different levels was like a, he kept referring to making amends that, you know, that that's very much a, you know, that's the verbiage of, of alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous, but that he's gone above and beyond to make amends. But I think that there was an, ex- just an exceptionally big level of maybe relief and hope when he was able to come out to a synagogue, not just say I was a neo-Nazi, but to say I'm no longer one. And I'm also like fighting for, you know, for police reform and for people to be treated better. And that's what it raises the bar so high that if anybody can even just get halfway up there, we would have such a vastly different country right now. Oh, my God. I couldn't agree more. He said last night in his speech, you know, he did make a reference to, he said, because, you know, because black lives do matter to me, black lives should matter to you. And to go to that, to go from being such an extreme person where he was kidnapping people and hate breeds hate, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And, you know, to have these I will say that they're angels that have been put in his life to sort of pull him out of that darkness. And even the gentleman that he calls every day just to keep him on the straight and narrow. I mean, he talks about his, you know, privately, he said he does his prayers every single morning. He wakes up and he does his prayers and he calls this man and he now has his 13 year old daughters living with him. And he's, you can see them together. And, you know, I spoke to her uh, a little bit after he spoke last night and this 13 year old daughter. And I said, how did you feel about that? with seeing your dad up there. And she said, I am so impressed and overwhelmed by his ability to get up there and tell his story. She said, she said, this 13 year old said, I'm so inspired by my father. I mean, I know, understand how somebody might be like, you know, he kept kind of referencing, well, nobody wants a recovering Nazi to hire one of those. And, you know, he had a big swastika and all tattooed on his neck, but you know, it, every part of his story he has, you can tell humbled himself like, not just, oh, I don't want to make this about me. I don't want to make this about me. He's like, no, literally, y'all, nothing is about you or me. It's about all of us collectively. And so he's, when we're preparing for this podcast, I mean, I watched endless little snippets, interviews, whatnot from CNN. He's sat down with NPR. He's done a lot of stuff to, to get that message out. And he is very adamant about it not being about him. And, you know, just, he's mm-hmm. just one example. And he's actually been a con, like they've used him as a consultant when talking about neo-Nazis now and mm-hmm. this day and age for him to say like, listen, this is what it's like in there. And so it's like, he's not, bra- I mean, I don't think he would ever call it bragging by any means, but he's not doing it to, no. it's if anything, to show everybody the signs of how people get sucked into this. It's If anything, it's very similar to how um, young black kids get get into gangs because they are dealing with the police force. They're dealing with everything else in society that's against them. So it's like, I can tell he sees himself in all of those same marginalized people because he himself was, even though he was white and, you know, had at least that privilege, he was still a broken child when it came down Mm -hmm. to it. And the difference that it would have possibly made if he had talked to that that rabbi or talk to the antique dealer that hired him before he went to see his cousins and everybody else, like the difference that that could possibly make. So I think it is very powerful to me to think that he might be able to be that person for somebody else. 
that stops them from going into that because they heard from a former neo-Nazi that it's not what it's cut out to be and that you can take things in a different direction. Yeah, he's actively doing God's work. And he's now become a vessel for good when he was such this vessel of evil and hate and self-hatred and self-loathing. You know, he said, kept referring to himself as stupid and, and, you know, he kept degrading himself and then society degraded him and then his parents degraded him. And he just never, this man who seemingly had no, not a bright future ahead of him is living proof that we are powerful we are powerful people. We all just have to muster up the strength within us. Doesn't mean it's not going to be hard, challenging, but he, like his daughter said, is probably one of the most inspirational people I have ever personally met. And I'm sure you can say the same thing. I mean, it's incredible. He's not proud of what he did to other people. He's not proud of the hatred that he inflicted and the pain and the physical violence he inflicted on other people. But I could see today that he is proud that he is doing what he feels is his now purpose, and that's to help other people. And to go through all of that and then be able, I mean, he was even emotional at the end. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what God is kind of talking about. I was like, I don't think it's necessarily that he's was moved so much by his own words, but I think that he was literally, he had a feeling of calm, hope, relief by, after being able to come out about that to his synagogue and and to proudly say, we can all be a part of the solution. And that is, yeah, like like you just said, it's not, it doesn't mean it's the easiest route. Like for so many people out there, they're literally fighting for food. I mean, they're food stamps. I mean, I've talked about this a lot with, you know, just local philanthropists and activists. You know, it's hard to get a community of people living in the projects or just the black community to get really involved with recycling or, you know, helping with the planet because they're literally like fighting for their lives. So who, why do they have any incentive to make sure every plastic gets put into a, to a, a recycling bin? So it takes special people like him to get out there and say like, look, I know your life is hard, but it is going to be a whole lot harder if you don't go in this direction as opposed to that direction. Today, we both agreed that we were not going to do a question of the day because we just felt that we both just need to tell everyone to just be kind to each other. We're all going through something, you know, we're all going through something. So be kind. Think about others over yourself. Doesn't have to be every second of the day, but just a little bit goes a long way. So... I have to say that was definitely for me personally, but for, I hope a lot of our listeners, a big message that we, that's all we want is to get it out there. So I hope that this is our, not to say anything negative about any of our guests, because almost there were so many times that I I would be like, oh my gosh, that just, this is reminding me of the hyperpartisanship that Joe Cunningham was talking about how there's such as polarization and, and even Tina with talking about narcissism, it's the cycle that's so impossible to break sometimes. And it's almost like he took everything, all the trauma that we've talked about and kind of showed that that you can pile it on and pile it on and pile it on. But the power of God, the power of people in and of themselves to make those changes happen, like it's still there. So imagine how you might change somebody's life by just thinking about them and not yourself one day. And, and how that can positively impact them in the future. 
get checking in on that friend who you suspect is maybe going through a rough time, just checking in. They might not want to talk, but knowing that you're there, it's just putting more positive energy on the universe and we freaking need it. Yeah. Right now. I think that is, you summed it up so perfectly that this is what we need right now. I mean, I, you can give all the money in the world to all the politicians in the world. You can write to your congressman, but honestly, just the more positive that we put out there, the better, you know, we're going to get back. It always just reminds me of Mr. Rogers and how he always said, you know, when basically if everything's going bad or, or everything is going in the wrong direction, just look for the helpers. The helpers are there to get you through. So that is my message to our listeners today is look for people like Frank. Our sincere, 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 sincere thanks to Frank Mink for coming on the program today and for sharing his overwhelming and incredible story. And we hope you all, you know, take some time and share it all over the place because people need to hear this. People need to hear this yeah, story. And this is not about us and our fame because we don't give a shit. We want everybody out there <laughs> to hear what he has to say and to get the message out because that's what's most important from this for sure. Well, have a wonderful day and everyone, please stay safe. Oh, I will. I've <laughs> You love too. You too. I love you.